the glory of Protestantism is its deep attachment to Scripture. Tonight I would ask you to see this with me by examining several texts to deepen and enrich our understanding. We are making our way through the book of Joshua, consecutive exposition, and when we come to Joshua 6, just a tiny bit of context is in order. The Jordan River has been miraculously crossed. The Israelites are now standing with their feet in the promised land. They're in Canaan. God's people have come through on dry land. The miraculous manna has now ceased. All the men of the nation have been circumcised. The Passover has been reinstituted and joyfully celebrated. And now the conquest of Canaan begins in earnest. Mighty Jericho, that great fortress city rising up out of the plain, lies in their sight. And in Joshua 6, we have the history of the Battle of Jericho, perhaps one of the strangest battles ever fought in the history of warfare. And the chapter teaches us several important themes we need to hang on to. It teaches us the supernatural, wonder-working power of God. It teaches us of the Lord's controversy with the ungodly. It teaches us of God's pursuit of the wicked in judgment. It teaches us, as we'll see tonight, the necessity of faith on the part of the believer, faith in the promises of God. And it teaches us God's way of doing things, that he works by covenants and promises for his power and glory. That is God's way. And as we proceed, it's good to remind you of some important presuppositions. We're going to be listening to the inerrant, infallible, revealed word of God. And we're listening to an absolutely accurate account of history. Everything you read in Joshua 6 is real and true. It's more accurate and precise than the 6 o'clock news of today. But I would tell you another equally important interpretive presupposition. These narratives are relevant to you tonight. Don't fall into the error of thinking, these, relative, these narratives are 3,400 years old. What relevance could they have to me? Carl, I'm dealing with rebellious teenagers. I have a tough job situation. This has no relevance to me in my life. Let me remind you what Paul says in Romans 15. He says, whatever was written in earlier times was written for our instruction that through perseverance and the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. This is not just accurate history, it's relevant history, which we will intersperse with application throughout. Let's seek the Lord's help now as we prepare to expound and then apply this text. Our Father, the Lord Jesus has told us, promised us, that it will be the task and glorious function of the Holy Spirit to guide us into all truth. It is his blessed work that is the Spirit's work, to open our eyes, to rivet our gaze on the Scripture, to show Christ to us, to transform hard hearts, to give true understanding to that which is false. And so we ask that you would pour out your Spirit now upon us, that we might understand, that we might walk in newness of life. We ask that we would even leave this place radically different tonight than when we came, that we would repent of those sins that we are holding on to now, that we would understand your ways more fully, that we would believe your promises, and, O Lord, that we would walk in faith. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Look carefully at your copy of God's Word to Joshua 6. And as I said, 
Um, I would ask you to have your copy of God's Word open because we'll look at six or seven other texts. Sandy and I have been on vacation some over the last few months, and one of the saddest services we were in was a service where the minister said, turn to this text, and we didn't hear a page turn. We didn't even hear phones beeping that were clicking over there. And so I, I would urge you to have your copy of God's Word open. And when we look at those six or seven other texts tonight, that you would certainly make your way to them. As I said, the, the glory of Protestantism is its attachment to the Bible. And that is the legacy that's been purchased for us by our Protestant forefathers. In, Jer- in Joshua 6.1, we're in the middle of a discussion between Christ who is the commander of the Lord's army, we've read about in Joshua, and we have this passing note. Notice in verse 1, we read, Jericho was securely shut up because of the children of Israel. None went out, none came in. The Hebrew is more graphic. It says, shutting the doors are shut. It speaks of something that's very tight. No Israelite could come in. No resident of Jericho could go out. And what you have here is a formal siege situation. Fighting God is very inconvenient. And that's what we see in verse 1 of chapter 6. We see the inconvenience of fighting with God and against his people. Now, we already know, I hope you'll just kind of look back, glance back across the page at chapter 5, verse 1. These people are already scared to death of Israel. Look at chapter 5, verse 1. So it was when the, all the kings of the Amorites were on the west side of the Jordan, and all the kings of the Canaanites were by the sea, heard that the Lord had dried up the waters of the Jordan from before the children of Israel until we'd crossed over, their heart melted. There was no more spirit in them any longer because of the children of Israel. And so what I want you to do is get a psychological profile with me of the people inside the walled city of Jericho to understand their attitude. The people who are inside of Jericho right now are petrified with fear. Now, I've got to do a minor correction in case any of you have the same children's literature in your house that we raised our children on. Years ago, 30, 35 years ago, when our children were small, we would sit down every evening and we'd go through piles of books. And the same ones became favorites, especially a few Bible story books. They fell apart. And my children had a particular favorite because the saga of the Battle of Jericho is, is exciting. It's, it's endlessly fascinating. And I remember it was so vivid as we turned the page and we came to Joshua 6.1. And the picture that the illustrator in the children's book had was of the people of the city of Jericho standing on the top of the wall. And they were going like this to the Israelites. Now, if you don't know what that is, consult a Three Stooges movie and you'll quickly learn. But the the people, according to the illustrator, just had that defiant sort of air. Maybe they were Italians. I don't know. But I would tell you that's not the case. Because when you look back at chapter 5, verse 1, I want you to see what the Bible says. We see they're not defiant. They're petrified with fear. They're afraid of Israel, and they're locked down tight behind these walls. That's why Jericho... Uh, Joshua could circumcise and incapacitate all his army right there on the plains in front of the walls because these men of Jericho are locked in tight behind their city walls. They're afraid. They're not going to come out and attack. Their hearts had melted, we're told by the word of God. Even though they weren't going to come out and attack, they did think this. They thought their high walls and their iron gates would protect them. They thought their 
their walls would stave off this army, even though the army of Israel is a large army, Jericho has a superior army. They thought, we've got these high walls, these fortresses. These fortresses are quite impressive. In fact, let me remind you how impressive the fortresses of Jericho are. Keep one finger here and look back at Deuteronomy chapter 1. And I want you to compare scripture with scripture and be educated on the culture and the military might of Jericho. In Jeremiah, or in Deuteronomy chapter 1, Moses is reminding the people of God what had happened 40 years earlier when Israel had marched up to the entry of Canaan. They'd come to Kadesh Barnea. They're getting ready to go into the land. Twelve spies are sent out. They go look over the land. They go to Jericho, and they spy out its defenses. And look what Moses reminds them of in Deuteronomy 1, verse 26. Nevertheless, you would not go up, but rebelled against the command of the Lord your God. And you complained in your tents and said, because the Lord hates us, He's brought us out of the land of Egypt to deliver us into the hands of the Amorites to destroy us. Where can we go up? Our brethren have discouraged our hearts, saying, The people are greater and taller than we. Their cities are great and fortified up to heaven. That's the assessment of these Israelite spies of Jericho. Their cities are great and fortified up to heaven. Apparently, these walls around Jericho were really impressive, defensive structures. And so the people on the inside, Jericho, are thinking, okay, we're scared to death, but we're safe behind the walls. The Israelites can't get us. But they didn't understand a most basic principle. They are fighting the God who opens and no man can shut. They're fighting the God who shuts and no man can open. Do you remember what God does in the face of locked gates? If someone tries to stave God off by locking the gates, does Jehovah just say, oh, you've got a concrete wall there? I guess I'm going to have to turn around and leave and go do something else. Is our God frustrated by national borders, by locked doors, by high walls? My friend, if God wants to accomplish something, a wall or a national border means nothing to him. And I want to prove that to you, because there are people here who struggle. I hear too often, well, God can't do that. He wouldn't do that. Keep your finger here and look at another text. Look at Acts 12 with me. And I want you to see what God does in the face of walls and chains and defenses and guards and that sort of thing. In Acts chapter 12, the apostle Peter has been arrested and he's about to be executed. And here is Peter in a very difficult spot. We would look with our human reasoning and say, wow, no way out of this jam for Peter. And we read in Acts 12, verse 6, when Herod was about to bring him out, that night Peter was sleeping, bound with two chains between two soldiers. So here's Peter, tied by a chain to a soldier on this side, tied by a chain to a soldier on that side. The guards were out front, in front of the door, keeping the prison. Peter is not getting out of this place, right? Pick up the narrative in Acts 12. Behold, an angel of the Lord stood by him, and a light shone in the prison. He struck Peter on the side and raised him up, saying, Arise quickly. Here we go. His chains fell off his hands. 
The angel said to him, gird yourself and tie on your sandals. And so he did. And he said to him, put on your garment and follow me. So he went and followed him and did not know what was done by the angel was real. He thought he was seeing a vision when they were past the first and second guard post. They came to the iron gate. Well, this is tough. God can't get through iron gates, right? They came to the iron gate, which leads to the city, which opens to them of its own accord. We need to see this principle that whether it's Peter in Acts 12 or whether it's God sending an earthquake to free his imprisoned disciples in Acts 16 or whether it's right now in Joshua 6 in our text. If God wants Peter out of a prison or wants his people into Jericho, he can do it. A locked gate, a fortified wall, a national border, nothing can stop a sovereign, omnipotent God. It's futile to fight against this God. This week, as Cindy and I drove, and we had lots of time to listen to a lot of speakers. I was listening to a famous national women's Bible study leader that some of you know, and she asserted this. I wrote it down because I couldn't believe that a Christian teacher would say this. God will never force anyone to do anything. God's a gentleman. He'll never come into any place he's not welcome. Ask the Canaanites if that's true. I would tell you by way of application. Some of you think that your husband or your children or your wife are so hardened that they're like the iron gate. They're like the walls of Jericho. They're beyond the reach of God. Brothers and sisters, no wall is thick enough to keep a sovereign God out. No heart is hardened beyond his ability to break through. God will get his man. He'll have all his holy will done. He's a sovereign, omnipotent God. If he can speak galaxies and solar systems into existence, he can break down that wall. Notice as well, look quickly in our text at verses 2 through 5. I want you to look at the commander. This is, we saw last week, the Lord Jesus Christ. Beginning in verse 2 through verse 5. Look at the commander, the orders of the commander of the Lord. Remember, we saw at the end of Joshua 5, this is the Lord Jesus Christ. And the orders that are being given from 5.13 to 6.5 are by Christ. And he appears Christ does a temporary appearance, uh, we call it the theophany or Christophany. He appears to Joshua, and he appears as a man in battle array with a drawn sword, showing he's going to fight the enemies of God. And I want you to see this evening this interaction between the commands of the commander of the armies of the Lord and the promises of the commander. Now, this is a, a vital yet basic understanding of the scripture that we all need to have. The relationship between promises and commands. I would strongly urge you to engage at some point in a study of the promises of God. And notice how frequently they're tied to the commands of God. And woe be unto us if we try to rip them out and say, I don't like commands, but I like promises. Because well over 90% of the time in scripture, if you do a quantitative analysis, you'll find that promises and commands are tied to one another. For example, look at the promises in our text. What does Christ, as he's standing there as the commander of the Lord's army, what does he say to Joshua? He gives him a promise. Look at verse 2. I have given Jericho into your hand. It's stated in the past tense as though it's already happened. You see, this is an unshakable bedrock promise. I've already given the city to you, Joshua. You can take it to the bank. You can count on it. Look at verse 5, the exact same thing. This is Christ, the man with the drawn sword says, 
It shall come to pass when they make a, a long blast with the ram's horn. And when you hear the sound of the trumpet, all the people shall shout with a great shout. Then the wall of the city will fall down flat. That's a promise. So God is making promises, not just sort of general promises like, I think you'll be successful one day, Joshua. He says, I promise you that you will conquer this city on this day in this method. You'll conquer them by a flattened wall after a ram's horn blast. God makes specific promises. And let me talk to you for just a moment about this issue of promises. Some of your parents think you should be able to tell your children something once, tell them some facts, some truths, some promise, and think that's it. I don't have to repeat myself. And some parents are a little bit impatient about this. I told you once, so I don't have to talk about it anymore. It's a settled issue. But that's not how God parents us. He tells us over and over and over again of certain promises and truth. For example, with the children of Israel. We could spend the rest of the evening just reading the promises, the number of times God has promised the Israelites that they would conquer their enemies, the Canaanites. Over and over again, he's made this promise. For example, look back to Deuteronomy 7. I want you to see this, this promise. This isn't the first time or even the tenth time that God has rehearsed this promise with his people. In Deuteronomy 7, Moses is telling the people of God while they're still outside the promised land about the promise. Pick up the narrative in verse 16 where the Lord through Moses says, you shall destroy all the peoples whom the Lord your God delivers over to you. Your eyes shall have no pity on them, nor shall you serve their gods, for that would be a snare to you. If you should say in your heart, these nations are greater than I, how can I dispossess them? You shall not be afraid of them, but you shall remember well what the Lord your God did to Pharaoh and all Egypt. The great trials which your eyes saw, the signs and wonders, the mighty hand, the outstretched arm by which the Lord your God brought you out. So shall, this is a promise, so shall the Lord your God do to all the peoples of whom you're afraid. Moreover, the Lord your God will send a hornet among them. And to those who are left, who hide themselves from you, are destroyed. You shall not be terrified of them. For the Lord your God, the great and awesome God, is among you. And the Lord your God will drive out those nations before you little by little. You'll be unable to destroy them at, at once, lest the beasts of the field become too numerous for you. But the Lord your God will deliver them over to you and will inflict defeat upon them until they're destroyed. And what you see is over and over again, over a span of several hundred years, God makes and repeats promises. Look back to Joshua chapter 1. Once again, I want to convince you with your own eyes on the text of Scripture. In Joshua chapter 1, you remember this from seven months ago. It's, yes, it's been that long since we're in Joshua chapter 1. Look how Josh, God begins to speak to Joshua as he takes the reins from Moses with promises. In Joshua 1 verse 2, Arise, go over this Jordan, you and all this people, to the land which I am giving to them. Same promise, the land promise. Again in verse 3, Every place that the sole of your foot will tread upon, I have given you. And then again in verse 5, No man shall be able to stand against you, but all the days of your life, as I was with Moses, so I'll be with you. I'll not leave you or forsake you. God repeatedly has given Joshua and the people of God this promise. Look at chapter 1, verse 13. 
The Lord your God is giving you rest and is giving you this land. God is repeatedly pounding this home by repetition. I am going to do this for you. Now Christ has come in Joshua 6 in our text to Joshua. He's going to tell him to do some strange things, militarily speaking. Before he does that, he gives him promises and assurances. Look at verse 2. Joshua 6 verse 2. The Lord said to Joshua, See, I have given Jericho into your hand its king and the mighty men of valor. Why does God do this? Is this filler? The Lord knows that we have great need of keeping his promises fresh in our consciousness. The promises of the word are to be our food and our drink. We're to live by the promises of God. Now you look at this and say, well, all that was very good for Joshua. He had promises. So he could walk by faith. And he had promises because Christ had come to him directly and said, Joshua, you'll be victorious. The walls of the city will fall down. But I don't have any promises to walk by. Oh, my friend, you have better promises than Joshua did. Once again, keep your finger here and look at 2 Corinthians 6. The reason why I want you to see this text tonight is specifically this point. is because you have promises as well. As we look at these promises that will motivate and energize the people of God, you and I have promises. In 2 Corinthians chapter 6, you and I have the promises of the new covenant. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 6 verse 16, I will dwell in them and walk among them. I'll be their God and they shall be my people. That's a promise. Then you have the promise of 2 Corinthians 6.18. I'll be a father to you and you shall be my sons and daughters. You have the promise of divine adoption. What are those promises to do? What should that motivate us to do? I want you to look at the, the linkage in our promises between promise and command. Paul says, as you look a little forward in 2 Corinthians 7, Paul says, since we have these promises, since God has said, I'm going to do all these glorious things for you, should we just say, well, we've got lots of promises. What are we going to do about it? Well, nothing. We just have promises. Paul says, since you have promises, that's the motivation and the basis on which we can say to the world, I'm sorry, not interested in what you're selling. God has promised something better for me. He's promised to be a father to me. He's promised to adopt me. He's promised to dwell in the midst of his people. So look at 2 Corinthians 7.1. On the basis of those promises, according to 2 Corinthians 7.1, we can perfect holiness in the fear of God. All the killing of the flesh, all the world denying, all the mortification of sin you and I must do, must come from living in light of God's promises. Do you have promises? You have great promises. Listen to the promise in Philippians 1.6. He who began a good work in you will complete it until the day of Christ. That's a promise. Do you fear and say, well, the Lord started with me. He gave me a new heart and he gave me new desires and he changed my mind, will, and emotions. But he might be like my dad who left when I was 10 years old. He might change his mind. No, he won't. He's promised that he'll complete the work. You have promises. Think of the promise we know from 2 Peter 1. And listen to what the promises Peter says that you have. Promises that are far better than the one Joshua had. 
Peter says in 2 Peter 1, Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. His divine power is given to us, has given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us by glory and virtue, by which have been given to us exceedingly great and precious promises. They're great in number, the promises you have. They're great in scope. They're great in what they hold out for you. In fact, my unbelieving friend, if I may be so bold as to say to you tonight, Christ has even made promises to you. The Lord Jesus has said, if you will come to him in faith, he will surely not cast you out. That's the promise of a gracious God who makes promises and then keeps them. Look back to our text in Joshua 6. And I want you to notice something about the strangeness of God's methods. This commander gives orders. This, of course, as we saw last week, is the Lord Jesus Christ, the greater Joshua, in verses 3 through 5. The commander gives orders in verses 3 through 5. And notice how odd they are. They hear this order and they think this sort of sounds dissonant to a military man's ears. He sees a fortress city. What does a military man want to do? Well, a military man like Joshua wants to do things like dig trenches, prepare catapults, look at straight-on rushes, fainting maneuvers. Now, here are the orders. Look at them carefully. They're strange. Verse 3, circle the city. Verse 10, in silence. Once a day, for six days, the priests are to blow their horns carrying the ark. And on day seven, circle the city seven times with the priests blowing trumpets by the ark. Then shout, and after one long blast of the ram's horn, the walls will fall down. You know what the military men in Joshua's inner circle are thinking. What? Walk in silence 13 total times around the city, blow horn, Keep silent. Well, Joshua, if we're going to march around the city, can we at least be menacing and have their guys at least wave their swords and say, we're coming to get you guys or something mean like that? Joshua, this is terrible strategy. How strange these instructions must have appeared. How utterly inadequate for such an enterprise, right? God doesn't tell Joshua to dig trenches, erect batteries, build battering rams, Who ever heard of a mighty fortress being completely demolished in response to a company of soldiers walking around it? And here's the point. God's ways are not man's ways. You and I should know this principle and live by it. When the world wants to press us into their ways, when even much of the church is going for the world's ways, the principle of Isaiah 55 God's ways are not man's ways. Think of how often we find that truth in Scripture. Here's Moses, who's supposed to be the the mighty leader and lawgiver of Israel. He's preserved in a floating basket in the River Nile. How's that for an odd method? Here's Goliath, the mighty giant of the Philistines. Whole armies have not been able to conquer him. He'll be conquered by a stone from a slingshot from a teenager. Here's John the Baptist, the forerunner of Christ. He's going to prepare by living in the wilderness, eating bugs and honey, dressing in scratchy camel's hair garments and a leather girdle. And then here's the oddest of all in terms of methods, the actual Savior, who's going to be born in a barn, laid in a feed trough. 
He's going to have as his ambassadors rough, blue-collar fishermen. You see, God delights in using weakness and seeming foolishness to defeat his enemies and glorify his name. Had Joshua called a council of his top generals and said, Guys, what do you think? What should be our, our method for taking Jericho? You know that one would say, well, Joshua, uh, the straight-on rush, we have them outnumbered. Let's surround them with troops and come in over the walls from every angle. Another would say, oh, no, no, let's use the old tunnel method. Let's tunnel in and minimize our losses. Another would say, no, Joshua, we don't want to go in for a long siege. Let's use our battering rams. We'll lose a few men at the gates, but they're expendable, and we'll be in the city very quickly. And all of those would simply be worldly wisdom. Because what God gives Joshua is divine wisdom. Now, why does God do things this way? It may seem strange, but it's not senseless. Here are five reasons why God tells Joshua in verses 3 through 5 to, to follow this plan. Five reasons. And I want you to notice that God's method actually starts looking very wise. The first reason, the reason why God does this is to magnify his own power. God is here determined that his strength and not men's strength will be exalted. He doesn't want any Joshua statutes built on the site. He'll not share his glory with another. Look what he says in verse 2. I have given Jericho into your hand. The first reason why God does things this way is so that his strength will be exalted and not man's. And this is a fundamental principle. If you don't know this principle, that God will not share his glory with another, you need to go back and study 101. God is not about exalting any man. He's about exalting himself. Listen to Psalm 21 and hear this principle spelled out for us. By the way, this was to be the song on Israel's lips, not of their own strength, but of God's. The psalmist writes in Psalm 21, verse 13, Be exalted, O Lord, in your own strength. We will sing and praise your power. Israelites were taught from earliest childhood they were always to exalt God's power and not their own. The first reason why God does things this way is to magnify his own power. The second reason is to put honor on the ark. Look at verse 5. Look carefully in our text. You see that the priests are to carry the ark around the city. Thirteen times that ark is going to circumvent the city of Jericho in seven days. Why? Why? Because the ark is the symbol of the presence of God with his people. And that's a theme in this saga. Ten times in verses 1 through 13, the ark is mentioned. You don't have to be much of an interpreter to know that the ark has a central place in this narrative when it's mentioned ten times. What is God saying by this? He's saying this. The greatest blessing and help Israel has is the presence of God in their midst. And that's symbolized by the ark. A third reason why God does things this way. To honor his appointed priests. The priests are to carry the ark and sound the trumpet. What are priests doing in a, in a battle? They ought to be back behind the women and children, right? They ought to be back there studying their scrolls. The Mosaic law even exempts them from military service. Why are they right here underneath the walls of Jericho carrying the ark around? Because God makes them prominent. They're prominent, you'll remember, in the crossing of the Jordan. Remember how the priests stood in the middle of the Jordan till all the people went by? And they're prominent here. 
So the people will see the special privilege they have in these men who are givers and carriers of the word of God and to whet their appetite for the final priest to come, who's the Lord Jesus. A fourth reason why God does things this way. God does things this way to test the faith and obedience of his people. The faith in his promises and the obedience to his commands. Will the people believe God's promises and obey his commands? Will the people grow tired of, oh, say, by the fourth day? Will they say, enough of this stuff. Let's just quit marching around and being quiet. Let's just make for a run against the wall and take these, these people right now. Or will they say, no. God has promised to do things and give us victory in his time. Will they trust and obey? Thirteen trips is a lot of trips to take in faith and obedience. And what we're going to see, Pastor King read a moment ago from Hebrews 11. The New Testament tells us these people walked by faith. For seven days, they did exactly what God said. Why did they obey the command? Because they believed the promise. I want you to go away from here tonight with this principle. What is it that will drive you to obey the commands of God? What will cause you to keep the whole Lord's day holy? It's if you believe his promise that he will give you a blessing on that day. What is it that will cause you to give the first fruits, the first 10% of your income? It's if you believe his promise that he'll provide for you with the other 90%. You see, the promises and commands are inextricably linked, and you can't pull them apart. Don't say, I love the commands, I have no use for the promise. Or I love the promise, and I have no use for the commands. They're linked. You can't have one without the other. What we see is, God does things this way to test the faith and obedience of his people. As I said a moment ago, Taylor read Hebrews 11. By the way, if you're wanting to know what the what the high parts of the Old Testament are. What are the mountain peaks? If you want to know those, just read Hebrews 11, and you'll see the high points over and over again are the people who walk by faith in Hebrews 11. You see this principle running through the whole Old Testament, the necessity of faith in God's promise. And so Hebrews 11, verse 30, we hear this. By faith. The walls of Jericho fell down after they were encircled for seven days. You see the principle? God's people believed and obeyed. But the fifth reason why God did things this way is to give early encouragement to his people in the conquest of all Canaan. This is their first battle on Canaanite soil. Remember what the evil spies had said 40 years earlier about the the cities of Canaan? Their, Their cities are fortified to heaven. We can never conquer them. That had been the mindset of a whole generation and it produced apostasy. And now what is God going to do for this generation at the very outset of the whole campaign? God's going to clearly say to them, the strongest and highest walls cannot stand against his omnipotent power. And if he can use a single shout to flatten the mighty walls of Jericho, he can certainly overcome all other obstacles and cities in Canaan. In their very first battle, he's going to encourage them and give them a mighty victory. How do we apply this very relevant word? Let me make three applications to us tonight by asking you three questions. Not asking the person sitting next to you, but I'm asking you. Directed to you. Are you fighting God today? 
There was a Broadway musical that came out a couple of decades ago that took on the title of an old spiritual, and the, the title of the musical was Your Arms Are Too Short to Box with God. And I would ask you, are you like the people behind the walls of Jericho? Are you saying, we're going to fight against God and his people? And are you foolishly thinking, and I'll win? What a fool. Wave the white flag. Give up. Stop kicking against the goads. You remember how Paul tried to fight against God and God knocked him off his ride and saved him. And Christ said to Paul from the heavens, it's hard to kick against the goads. And I would say to you tonight to give up fighting God. Bow the knee to him and surrender to him gladly. Conflict with the sovereign, omnipotent Lord is always a fool's errand. And you will lose every time. A second question by way of application. Are you consciously living by faith in God's promises tonight? Carl, I don't even know what those promises are. Well, I would encourage you to make a quick search. Just go on the internet. Promises of God for the believer. And find them. But I will tell you. What is it that will wean you away from the world? What is it that will give you power and sanctification? It is if you're living by faith in the promises of God. When the world says to you, quit living for Christ, what is he going to do for you? If you have the ability, because you know the promises of God, to say, my Christ has promised me I'm going to prepare a place for you. And so I believe his promise. Therefore, I obey his commands. I live my life for him. But if you don't know the promises of God, you'll not obey the commands of God. If you don't know the promises of God, you'll walk by sight. And you'll quickly say, I have to have the things of the world right now because I don't believe or know the promises of God. So I have to live by worldly wisdom. I have to live by my own nerve and by my own plans now. What will cause a man to live and walk by faith? Only because he knows and believes the promises of God. Finally, do you follow, no matter how strange they seem, do you follow the commands of Christ? Perhaps you're thinking, I just don't understand this fourth commandment business. How can God tell me to set aside one day in seven? Doesn't he know I'm busy? Doesn't he know about NASCAR and the NFL? Come on, one day in seven? The commands of God, you see, seem strange to these people too. But look at how God blessed their obedience to his commands. When God says to you to give him the first fruits, to give him the tithe, you say, doesn't God understand economics? I can't feed my family and pay for car payments and mortgages on 90% of my income. God blessed obedience to his commands, and I will tell you this. Every single one of God's commands seems strange to the worldly mind. Every single one. There's not one command of God that seems reasonable to the worldly mind. But to the believer, it's a very simple question. We could have asked the men at Jericho, do you plan on obeying God's commands? Do you plan on walking around the city 13 times over the next seven days and then shouting? And they would say, of course. Our God's omniscient. He knows best. Why should we do anything other than what he's commanded? He's the commander. We're just the soldiers. He's promised to bless our obedience. What would every one of those men say if they could rise up from the grave right now? Obey God's commands. 
their wisest and best, they're always right. May God strengthen us as he leads us forward and defeats all his and our enemies. Let's pray. Oh, Christ, how we thank you for your omnipotence, that you can open walls that are shut. How we thank you that you have all power. We're reminded, O oh Lord, of your words when you said, all power and authority has been granted unto you. And so, Lord, we stop our foolish notions that you can't overcome a heart that's too hard or a national border or resistance to the gospel. No, Lord, once again, we commit ourselves in faith to you as the one who can cause walls to fall down flat. And Lord, how we thank you for the promises that you've given. We thank you for the great, precious, magnificent promises. Promises of eternal life. Promises of security and salvation. Promises made concerning our children, even to the thousandth generation. Promises of provision. And Lord, we ask now for faith. We confess that far too often do we ask for more and greater faith. But Lord, we ask for faith that we might live by your promises that we might obey your commands because we believe your promises. We ask that you might pour out a blessing upon us as we believe and obey.